Good morning. An exclusive interview with the daughter of Jane Roe, whose case legalized abortion 50 years ago. Unrest in Atlanta after police shooting kill a well-known environmental activist. The cops say it was self-defense, but demonstrators don't believe it. The U.S. sanctions the Wagner Group, a Russian private military organization, and peace activists mark two years since a landmark treaty banning nuclear weapons. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Monday morning, January 23rd, 2023. A raucous protest broke out in downtown Atlanta Saturday night after 26-year-old Manuel Paez Terran, known as Tortuguita, was killed by police. The sound of protesters being arrested at a rally in Atlanta on Saturday night. Officials say Tortuguita shot and injured a state trooper, but friends are challenging the cops' version of events. The police were clearing protesters from the site of a planned Atlanta-area public training safety center activists have dubbed Cop City when Tortuguita was alleged to have shot the officer who was rushed to a hospital in stable condition and remains unnamed. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens. Atlanta is safe and our police officers have resolved the disruptions downtown from this evening. Thanks to the quick action of our public safety officials working together, order has been restored in a swift manner. Now, the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta Police Department will not, uh, will not tolerate this and we continue to protect the right to peacefully protest. Uh, we will not tolerate violence or property destruction. Protesters have accused police of using violence to quell their movement to stop the police foundation from building the training center. Some activists spoke in support of their friend. If there's one thing that we want people to remember toward for, it's that they were somebody who protected the people around them, who went through the training along with the rest of us to be able to provide medical resources to the people that were around them that may not have access to them. No matter what else the news says about Tort, they were a protector. Everything they did was out of love. Everything they did was out of hope for a better world. We all have to stand here and stay together and stay resilient to fight for what we believe in and never let Tort's memory go without honor. Mayor Dickens, Ryan Millsap, you have blood on your hands. Last month, about 13 people, mostly in their 20s, were arrested on domestic terrorism charges at an encampment near the site. Others have been arrested for destruction of property and other charges. The police center would be built on a forest surrounded by poor black neighborhoods, although in 2017, the Atlanta City Charter endorsed plans to keep the forest as a public amenity. The city council approved the center anyway. The Stop Cop City movement grew in response. In more national news, protests were held across the country to mark the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the decision legalizing abortion that was overturned by the Supreme Court last year. In Madison, the capital of Wisconsin, 
a state that's virtually banned the procedure. Hundreds packed the rotunda of the state capitol to demand abortion rights. Vice President Kamala Harris used the occasion to announce a presidential memorandum dedicating the federal government to promoting access to women's health care. Members of our cabinet and our administration are now directed, as of the president's order, to identify barriers to access to prescription medication and to recommend actions to make sure that doctors can legally prescribe, that pharmacies can dispense, and that women can secure safe and effective medication. Republicans in Congress are now calling for a nationwide abortion ban. Some even from the moment of conception. The right of every woman in every state in this country to make decisions about her own body is on the line. And I've said it before and I will say it again, how dare they? Although in later years, McCorvey came out against abortion on her deathbed, McCorvey reportedly said she did it for the money, at least $450,000 she received from pro-life groups. Her daughter, Melissa Mills, says that's true, but behind the scenes, her mom was strongly pro-woman. Melissa Mills, daughter of Norma McCorvey, Jane Rowe, and her attorney, Gloria Allred, spoke exclusively with the news on Sunday. Well, actually, this is the first day on this 50th anniversary, Paul, that she has gone to a protest and spoken out the way that she has. And I'm extremely proud of her that she's done that, that she's very courageous and that you're welcome and that she's honoring her mother and the Roe v. Wade legacy. That is so important to all of us. And she marched with me today. We marched in Long Beach, big women's march. There were some men in it too and children. And we marched to the courthouse and then we spoke there. It was a very moving day for us. So all I can say is she's very courageous. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That means a lot to me, too. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, and she flew from Texas, too, which we know is an anti-choice state, what I would call a mandatory motherhood state, to Los Angeles just to be with us today at that protest and that march. And so that just shows how far she was willing to go when I invited her to be part of this today. What's it like to be the daughter of a famous Roe? And not only that, the daughter. I emphasize that, right? Because that's the first thing people would say. Well, you know, the the anti-choice people will say, well, you could have been your sister or brother, right? What do you say to people who say, say things like that to you? I'm sure you hear it it's moving to see people want to reverse this and that it, she did mean something to people and it was that big and it was needed and now we don't have it it feels bad that we've lost it for all her hard work and everything she did to uh, keep it moving and keep it going all of her years while she was living it's good and bad i'm so proud of her and i'm so so proud to be a part of it i just wish it wouldn't have stopped and i wish all of her hard work wasn't It's not in vain, but it's gone. We've got to get it back. Why is it so important for women to have this right? 
for everything, for every reason. We shouldn't be told what to do with our bodies and our reproductive rights. And as women, we should be trusted that we know what to do with our own bodies. And we should be able to decide whatever we want, when we want it, how we want it, and not be told by anybody, especially a government, how we should do that and when we should do that and if we can do that. And especially the health care, not giving us health care to take care of ourselves. And that should be just a given right. Anybody's given right for that. We should health care shouldn't be selected by someone else when we can have it, if we can have it, if we can ever have it anywhere. And Melissa, let me ask you, did you ever discuss this with your mom? Oh, yeah. I lived it with her my entire life, going through the things that she went through. It's nothing new for me. I mean, I, I, I grew up with it. Give me some specific ideas of some of the things you had to go through and some of the issues that came up. Just watching her be upset and, and fight the fight against people that didn't want Roe to continue, the people that wanted to overturn Roe forever, and there was always a fight. There was always some type of fight against pro-life, anti-abortion. So it was constantly a fight and constantly something to do to work against, to keep Roe going, continued for everybody. It was just always something going on to keep it, to fight for it. I didn't think I'd lose my mother as young as she was. I thought she would be doing this like Gloria for a long time, and, and she... So I just kind of fell into it with the overturning of Roe, and that made it even more pronounced. I never thought Roe would get overturned, though, either. Right. I never thought they would get us. Never thought it would happen. And you know, Paul, that although for many years she, uh, Jane Roe, Norma Corby, Melissa's mother, was pro-choice and spoke out with me, there was a certain point where she was being offered money by the anti-choice group and she needed it and she went over to the other side. However, she made that important deathbed confession that she really had always been pro-choice. Melissa can attest that too and it's because mm -hmm. she was pro-choice. That they used your mom in that way, you know? and and Yeah, she gave up a lot for them. She gave up who she was, her love of her life. She gave up a lot for pro-life group she and they wouldn't let her be who she really was she did it for money i mean and that's what she had to survive she was an uneducated woman she didn't have anything to help her in her older age she did what she had to to survive she was always pro-woman she was always pro-woman and she wanted every woman to have the rights that they deserve and should have that shouldn't be a question to take care of themselves and not be controlled she didn't want any woman to ever hurt she just wanted more rights, not less, not fewer. Melissa Mills, daughter of Norma McCorvey, Jane Rowe, and her attorney, Gloria Allred, spoke exclusively with the news on Sunday. A dozen Republican-governed states have implemented sweeping bans on abortion, and several others seek to do the same, while abortion opponents were defeated in votes on ballot measures in Kansas, Michigan, and Kentucky. And in international news, the Speaker of the Lower House of Russia's Parliament warned Sunday that countries sending more powerful weapons to Ukraine could cause a global tragedy that would destroy their countries. The warning came as NATO was debating sending tanks to Ukraine. As winter sets in, muddy roads are expected to freeze, heralding a possible Russian offensive. Ukraine's government has been demanding the West supply tanks to counter the threat.
At a U.S.-sponsored meeting at Ramstein Air Force Base, the German government continued its cautious approach to sending its high-tech Leopard tanks to bolster Ukraine's army, but officials say they won't object if Poland sends some of its own fleet of Leopards. Meanwhile, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky vowed Sunday that Ukraine would ultimately prevail in the war. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby announced that the shadowy Wagner Group, a Russian military company the Kremlin insists doesn't exist, would face further sanctions by the United States. Kirby also released images to support claims made last month in North Korea as providing arms to the Wagner Group. Wagner is becoming a rival power center to the Russian military and other Russian ministries. Publicly, Prigozhin and his fighters have criticized Russian generals and defense officials for their performance on the battlefield. Prigozhin is trying to advance his own interest in Ukraine, and Wagner is making military decisions based largely, largely, on what it, they will generate for Prigozhin in terms of positive publicity. In recent weeks, we have seen North Korean officials falsely deny that they have provided arms to Wagner. Now, while we assess that the amount of material delivered to Wagner has not changed battlefield dynamics in Ukraine, we do expect that it will continue to receive North Korean weapon systems. Last month, the Department of Commerce designated Wagner as a military end user, which means we expanded the entity listing of Wagner to ensure that it cannot access equipment anywhere in the world based on U.S. technology or production equipment. The Wagner Group is reportedly owned by Evgeny Prigozhin, a Russian billionaire known as Putin's chef because his restaurants cater events for the Kremlin. The Wagner Group is part of a trend towards private mercenary armies in several countries, including the United States, where famously the Blackwater Company, with ties to high-level government officials, had contracts to provide fighters to Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2004, a convoy containing American contractors from Blackwater was attacked by Iraqi insurgents. Four armed contractors were killed, their bodies hanged over a Euphrates River bridge. The incident led to two separate battles before U.S. forces seized control of the city. Former United States Marine Corps captain and Greens Party candidate for United States Senate in North Carolina is Matthew Ho. He says the first private contractors in the Army were filmmakers during World War II, but it was during the Bush administration that private military groups came into vogue. Dick Cheney, who as Secretary of Defense under George H.W. Bush, really pushes for the outsourcing of the military. It's crazy, Paul. Cheney says to Brown and Root, which became a subsidiary of Halliburton, which ultimately Dick Cheney went to become the leader of, but says to them, you know, give us a plan to outsource a lot of the functions of the military. And they did it. And then they turn around and start rewarding those plans. And so you had, particularly under the Clinton administration, this great growth in the privatization of the military, where a lot of functions such as supply and maintenance and logistics became contractor function, doing intelligence work, doing a security work, you know, providing you would see where military officers, not just diplomats or CIA, would have private security as their, you know, contractor security. And so you had just this mass uh, privatization of the military workforce. That was just a huge, a huge, huge payday for these companies. And it continues. The Pentagon, half the Pentagon budget goes to private companies, goes to contractors. According to Brown University, $14 trillion that was spent on the Pentagon in the wars from 2001 to 2021, 
and about seven trillion went to private contractors, to companies, to weapons makers, or to firms like Halliburton. The other thing is it hides the costs of the wars. It hides accountability. But the fact that there were eight thousand contractors killed in those wars is not recognized. People don't pay attention to it. It wasn't really reported. The Congress isn't concerned about that. So that hides the cost of the war, hides the true cost. Those 8,000 who were killed were all killed doing work that in any previous war, someone would have been wearing a uniform in. Bringing it back to Russia and this Wagner group and, and sanctioning them as a terrorist organization. But I think what's more interesting is the possibility that they could conflict with Putin and with the Russian army and be the source of a coup against the government, bringing us back to people like Betsy DeVos and the rest of them who were in a government that actually had an attempted coup. Uh, So it's not that far off a base, right? That's exactly some of my concerns, is that as you see workers like this build up and do well uh, in the public eye, Wagner Group, everybody knows their name now. I can't imagine the celebration they received within Russia. And there is this fear that I think a lot of us have who are very concerned about the policies of the U.S. government in the sense of desire is to see regime change in Russia. We're not concerned about it because we are fans of Putin or think the Russian system is currently a great thing or anything like that. We're concerned because you are entering in something that you cannot control and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And certainly American foreign policy history for uh, decades has been just one more evidence of that after another of the second, third, and fourth steps after something is not just unknowable, but is more dangerous or worse than what you had before. Many of us fear with Russia that if you had regime change in Russia, you are not going to get a pro-Western figure in charge. You're going to get someone who's even more to the right of Vladimir Putin, someone who's more of a nationalist, who's more authoritarian, who is more responsive to the oligarchs. Certainly you could see that where you have this company like Wagner Group, which is at the end of the day, a tool of the oligarchs, they are going to be responsive to them. And I think the same fear exists too for a lot of us for what's happening for within Ukraine, that as you know, you continue the war, as things get worse and worse, the possibility of a coup in Ukraine grows, and Zelensky is not going to be replaced by anyone other than someone from the far right. The prospects, as you look at it, are bleak for the war to continue in terms of comparing it to history. As you see like this growth of Wagner, as you see the fighting continue, as you see other people within Russia start to get more celebrity, if you will, that does ultimately put pressure on the Kremlin and on the president's office there. And you do have to wonder what they're thinking in terms of how stable are we. Matthew Ho is former United States Marine Corps captain and Greens Party candidate for the United States Senate in North Carolina. Sunday marked two years since the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons came into force. The treaty is the first to establish a categorical ban on nuclear weapons under international law. 122 nations have signed the treaty. 69 nations didn't vote, including all nuclear weapons states and NATO members. A coalition calling itself Roses to Missions carried red roses to the consulates, thanking nations that approved the treaty, assembling near the United States consulate across from the UN to deliver a message asking the U.S. to sign. What do we want? Sign the peace treaty. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Sign the nuclear ban treaty. treaty. When do we want it? Now. Now. The 
Shut it down. Shut it down. Shut it down. Sally Jones, co-director of Peace Action New York, explained the purpose of the day's action. This is the second anniversary of the uh, entering into force of the uh, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. It, ha it officially happens on Sunday, but we're doing it today. And it's all of these actions all across the country and the world are honoring the 68 countries that ratified the, the nuclear ban treaty. It's very significant. And uh, 92 countries have signed the treaty. And we're halfway there. We're halfway there to get all of the countries in the United Nations to sign this treaty. And the main ones are the ones, US, NATO, Russia, all the countries that are under the US and um, other nuclear weapon states umbrella. They are the ones that we need to get to. And one by one, we're going to pick them off. <laughs> we're going to pick them off for peace. <laughs> and that's our goal. Somebody is going to hear the, this message. And somebody, and the people in that country and in our country, they're going to get the message across and make movement on this treaty. Because as, as Deborah said, it's, it's not the paper, it's the people. It's the people that make the difference. So thank you so much. This reporter was among several awarded special mention last year for reporting on the peace movement and made for a lighthearted moment. So thank you, uh, WBAI, for being here and for Paul Rienzo. In exile. In exile, in exile. com. <laughs> This program was at one time the daily news program at Pacifica radio station WBAI in New York. Meanwhile, an activist described delivering the message to the door of the consulate. He accepted our certificate and the names of the groups that are a part of the coalition as well as the names of the countries that have signed the treaty. And uh, he seemed very receptive to the petition, he said he would uh, pass it on to the appropriate officers, and we suggested that we would contact them several weeks from now to try to arrange an appointment for dialogue. And the crucial importance of meeting the current crisis. All the missions that we went to yesterday to congratulate them on, on signing the treaty had, you know, had, you know, had a message for the U.S., which is, uh, why doesn't the U.S. get uh, get with the program? You know, they didn't say it in those words, but that that's the message. So the U.S., you know, they signed the treaty. So why can't the U.S. 
you know, uh, go with the rest of the world? And that's, that's the question that we're facing now, and I hope that's the question that the U.S. will answer, particularly in the greatest nuclear crisis since the, the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Thank you. Then the peace activists took a moment to sing a favorite ditty, the Hammer Song, made famous by Pete Seeger and other folkies. If I had a song, I'd sing it in the And that's some of the news for Monday morning, January 23rd, 2023. The news was produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. I'm